From PWRDF, this is A Just Generation, where we delve into the world of social justice and social action, speaking to people around the world who are making a world of difference. Hello, everyone. My name is Emily Walker. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm currently recording this in Toronto the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations. Today, we will be in conversation about gender equality in the church, with which both of our guests have rich experiences to share about tokenism, true women's empowerment, and where our churches stand approaching the 50th ordination of women in 2026. I am so excited to introduce our two incredibly cool and fantastic guests. The Most Reverend Linda Nichols is the primate of the Anglican Church of Canada, and the National Bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada, Susan Johnson. Primate Linda is a teacher, the first woman to assume the role of the head of the Anglican Church of Canada, and only the second woman in the entire Anglican Communion, so that's all over the world, to lead a national church. She has been primate since 2019 and is also staff to her cat. Archbishop Linda, where are you today? Hello, Emily, and uh, thank you for that introduction. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm speaking to you from London, Ontario, where I live, on the traditional territories of the neutral, Atawandran, Haudenosaunee, Lene Lenape, and Huron-Wendat peoples. Wonderful. Bishop Susan Johnson has been the national bishop since 2007. She is a musician and a teacher among probably 600 other hats. I'm almost 20 now recording this, and I remember growing up in my Lutheran church and seeing her leadership shaping my relationship with faithful female leaders. Bishop Susan, where are you today? I'm in Winnipeg today on Treaty 1 territory, homeland of the Métis Nation. So both of you grew up in a time when women were not allowed to be formal church leaders or pastors. What was that like for you and your journey to get to where you are now? Well, when I was growing up, I thought I would follow the traditional path of becoming a nurse. I was going to do that through a university education. But I remember years later, my middle sister asking, well, why did you not want to be a doctor? And I said, well, because nobody ever suggested it, encouraged it, no guidance counselor. And I just thought that was not really for women, I guess. And it was always a puzzlement to me later why I didn't try that. But I do remember the first time I encountered a woman in ordination, and that was uh, many years later. I'd been living overseas. I came back to Canada, and the curate in the neighboring church was Bishop Victoria Matthews, later Bishop Victoria Matthews. That was my first real encounter. I knew that women were being ordained for about five or six years, but It just had not been on my radar at all. Wow. And Bishop Susan, what was that like for you? Well, in my family, my dad is a pastor. Um, His older brother is a pastor. My mom's dad was a pastor. And two of his brothers and at least two of his brother-in-laws. So although being a pastor was kind of the family business, it it was very much the business for men in the family. So we grew up as a a family of PKs and we would play church all the time, but I would never take the role of pastor. We would make my younger brother be the pastor and I would just boss him around from the sidelines. (laughs) I remember the excitement when I heard that our church was at least considering ordaining women. And that was sort of early in high school. 
but the actual ordaining didn't happen towards sort of that transition between high school and university. And I'd already set my path on a career as a teacher. So I, I didn't consider it. I do remember the first time I met a woman pastor and it was at Lutheran Student Movement Retreat and the guest was pastor from the ELCA. And I was like gobsmacked. It was really different for me. Wow. Thank you both for sharing those stories. I think having to unlearn the things that society has told us that maybe we didn't even notice is such brave and also difficult work. So uh, it's unlearning work and it's holy work. Absolutely. And we're so grateful for you where you are today. Another question, what are some of the stereotypes people hold about female leadership in the church? And what were some unexpected barriers you both faced on your own journeys? Well, I think there's a lot of stereotypes about the way women lead. I am an emotional person. I cry easily, and often people see that as a sign of weakness. I have gotten over that a long time ago and see it as one of my strengths because I deal with my emotions as they come up. I don't bottle them up, and I'm not ashamed of crying in public, but it has made some people very uncomfortable, and I think they sometimes think they can take advantage of me because of that. The other thing is to be strong and firm in my position sometimes has led people to make derogatory comments about me. You know, you're the bee. (laughs) Instead of being a strong leader, you're seen as being some kind of witch or something. And that's really difficult and frustrating. Yeah, I can imagine. It's also hard because I've had experiences, of course, relating to churches that do not ordain women or other faiths where women don't have sort of equal positions. And those have been very difficult and awkward situations to try and navigate, to try and claim your own space and to keep reminding people that, no, you're not miss your bishop. Well, I grew up in a household where my parents were very supportive of pursuing whatever vocation would give me joy. And they were clear about that, that it was not about how much you could earn. It was about something where you could put your heart and your soul into it. And a sense of equality that when I was ordained and began to run up against people who struggled with me in a position of leadership, I kept puzzling over the why it was. And it took me a long time to accept that it was simply because of my gender. It was not because of something I was saying wrong or doing wrong. It was because of my gender and they weren't used to someone in authority and particularly spiritual authority over them. I had some really difficult times where I had to recognize that. I think the other thing was it was really hard in the early days to be a woman as you wanted to express that. So for instance, I can remember you didn't wear dangly earrings and that was quite clear. Not only did they interfere with the vestments, it was distracting to people. So to this day, I still rarely wear anything that dangles. It has to fit tightly and not be a distraction to anybody else. And I remember the first time I decided that I might wear uh, nail polish on my toenails and sandals in the sanctuary. I felt like I just violated the 11th commandment. (laughs) There was this pervasive sense of toning down your sense of womanhood. And of course, nothing fit. The clergy shirts were all made for men in the early days. And so, you know, you had to figure out what you were going to do about that. But I think that has relaxed. Initially, it really felt like you couldn't be yourself fully. 
Bishop Susan, do you share that experience? Oh, yeah. I remember my liturgics professor teaching us about the earring thing and the bracelet thing and no colored nail polish and black closed toed shoes. I do remember that when I was first ordained and was serving as a pastor, I really tried to downplay looking feminine. Like I wore very almost uniformish clothes and no makeup. All right, I'm back to no makeup. That's pretty personal choice now, and uh, tried to look very serious. Blend in, yeah. And so how did you navigate entering into a male-dominated space when, like you just mentioned before, even clerical clothing was not tailored to women? <laughs> well, my favorite story is, is when I was a curate, I had never seen a bishop outside of wearing their full vestments. And I knew they wore purple shirts, but uh, it hadn't occurred to me what shade of purple. And the Anglican shade is a kind of magenta pink purple. And I was just at the point of making my own clergy shirts. And I had this lovely tartan kind of skirt that had a magenta pink stripe in it. And I decided, oh, that would make a good color for a clergy shirt. And so I made one. And the first day I wore it, I wore it to a clericus meeting, which is a meeting of other clergy. And oh, did I get ragged because that was color that only bishops wear. And here was I, the only female, presuming, and a curate at that, you know, bottom of the totem pole, presuming to wear this shirt. So it went back into my closet and uh, did not see the light of day until I was elected as a bishop. And a colleague who had been at that meeting, who was a very good friend, said to me, right on that day, he turned to me and he said, you do still have that shirt, don't you? <laughs> my consecration. <laughs> What a full circle moment. Bishop Susan, do you have anything that comes to mind? In some ways, the transition to being a woman in a man's dominated world was kind of expected for me because even as a high school music teacher, as a band teacher, it was seen as being a male profession. And I had professors in university tell me that women shouldn't be band directors. Really? Yeah, I know. And I would take my students into festivals and they would softly record your band playing and you know make comments about it and they would always comment about my physical person first before they would comment which was just so blatantly sexist I do remember I didn't wear clergy shirts you know during seminary except my at the very end of my internship I had to do a funeral on my own because my pastor supervisor was away on holidays so she took me to the local church supply store to choose a clergy shirt and I had the choice of the women's shirts, which had frills along the top <laughs> and were in pastel colors or the men's, which didn't fit. And it was really awkward. But it also reminded me of my mother taking me to buy my first bra. It was really a weird experience <laughs> because I felt like I was wearing men's clothes for the first time. Yes, very strange. Let's talk tokenism. In these roles, both of you are essentially representing every Anglican and Lutheran woman on a world stage. Can you talk about the line between being empowered and becoming a token of perfect gender equality in the church? I can remember times when I was invited to be on a particular committee. And as I asked questions about this committee, I said, well, who's on it and why are they on it? It became clear that it was a committee for a particular theological position. And it was clear that all of the other members were senior members of that theological position in the country. 
one lay woman and they were asking me. And I thought, you're asking me because I sort of fit the theological position, but primarily you want to be able to show everybody else that you're not so far on one side that you wouldn't have a woman cleric. And so you're asking me to take that position. And I, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm not prepared to do that. It was just blatantly clear in the invitation why I was being invited. And I was not at that point prepared to be the token female in a group where I was absolutely certain my voice would never be allowed to be heard. As a young cleric, I certainly struggled when people would make sexist jokes, misogynist jokes, and I didn't feel like I had enough confidence or authority to be able to challenge that. I would challenge it now, but <laughs> at that point it was very hard. Today I would say it's much easier because most of the male clergy and the male leaders have grown up in their ministries with women in leadership alongside of them. And so I have not found it to the same degree in Canada and in international settings. Most of the places I go to are meetings that are kind of diplomatic in their nature and people know that they have to behave, even if they disagree profoundly with the ordination of women. But I did remember the Lambeth Conference in 2008, which is bishops from all across the world. There were 18 women and 750 or 800 men. There was no lineup at the women's washroom. <laughs> there were bishops there who were clearly unhappy that we were there and literally would cross the road so they didn't have to kind of engage with you. So you just recognize that their community, their country is not ready for that conversation. You're polite, you're respectful when you speak to them, but you don't back down. Yes, wonderful. Bishop Susan, I know you have stories to share as well. One about the Bishop of Tanzania and going there. Yeah, well, that was tokenism, but I think in a positive way. The Archbishop of the Lutheran Church in Tanzania invited me to come to a celebratory church-wide program that they were having because he wanted to demonstrate to his church that women could be bishops. So I was asked to come to be a positive role model because he thought his church should be thinking about electing women bishops since they had women clergy. I was happy to take that responsibility on. One of the most awkward times I remember was when the bishops of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, our sister church, and, and our church did a visit to the Holy Land. And I was the national bishop at that time. And the bishop of the our partner church there, the ELCJHL, and the bishop of ELCA were, well, I was really new. I don't think I'd been a bishop a year yet. And, but they, they really helped me claim my space and ensured that I had equal representation. But we had a meeting with the chief rabbis in Israel. And first, like, they wouldn't shake hands with me. All right, that's a religious choice, I understand. But they didn't want to let me talk either. And the bishop of our partner church in, in Jerusalem said, well, if, if she is not speaking, we aren't speaking. And negotiated with the chief rabbis because he knew them. And then I was given one minute and Bishop Munib Yunan came up to me and say, take all the time you want. <laughs> so wow, played out in front of all the bishops. You're trying to not show how much it's really bugging you and then trying to be somehow gracious when you're speaking. Yes, yes. Thank you for sharing that. I think there's even this line between being a token to represent women and sometimes you're picked not just because of your gifts and talents, just because of what you represent. And that is difficult and conflicting in your heart. 
So what gender equality issues are not receiving the attention they deserve and what are our churches doing about them? One of the things that I'm really concerned about is violence against women and gender-based violence. The World Council of Churches has a program called Thursdays in Black to draw attention to violence against women and girls. And I'm an ambassador for that program. Our church has tried really hard to, when we meet on Thursdays, to invite people to wear black. We give them buttons that say Thursdays in Black. But I was on a Zoom call with my male colleagues. All of the synod bishops are male at this time. And it was a Thursday, and I'm in black wearing my button, and none of them are. And I said, so, hey, guys, this is something we're trying to promote in the church. And I don't think it should be me as the woman being the only one talking about this. Yes. And they really, I was really amazed because they, it was like, you know, scales fell off their eyes, and they got it. And so we agreed, we wrote a letter to our church and talking about the increase in domestic violence during this time of pandemic and condemning it and calling our church to prepare and deal with, call out. So I felt really, really good about that. But to always have to remind sometimes peeves me. Yes, and just to piggyback on the back of that around violence, you know, for the Anglican Church of Canada, certainly there are many who are participating in the Thursdays in Black, but a particular issue for us is the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, that our work with the Indigenous community in reconciliation after residential schools has led to us realizing some of the intergenerational power of that abuse that continues to be felt in attitudes in the society and plays itself out in uh, the kind of violence against Indigenous women. And we saw that just recently in Quebec with that woman who was ill in hospital being taunted by other women. Yes. So it's not just about male violence against women. It's about racial violence that is perpetrated by others, and particularly against women. I think we've also seen in the last week against Asian women in the United States, but it's true here as well, the kind of stereotyping and conceptualizing of Asian women in a particular way that fetishizes the the relationship between Asian women and men. So I certainly think there's uh, work that needs to happen there. I also think there's other kinds of equality issues. The, the, the wage gap for women, mm-hmm. uh, wage yes. equality is still an issue. And there's a great deal of worry that coming out of the pandemic, We have fallen back by 10 or 20 years in that because so many women had to withdraw from the workforce in order to be able to homeschool or just watch over and nurture children who were homeschooling or online schooling. And getting back in the workforce, they say that men have already started to get back in quite rapidly, but women have not. Right. I do remember the first time a ordained woman was pregnant. There was this huge cry about what is the church going to do? Yeah. Uh, because they get maternity leave. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> moment of, well, maybe you shouldn't have been ordained till after you were past childbearing years and that kind of thing, rather than how do we look at this holistically? And I'm very glad that we've moved to the point where husbands and wives take maternity leave and participate in that. But I I still remember the thought of having a pregnant woman in the pulpit was shocking to people. Exactly. I think all of those things and to also remember that as white women, we're not in competition with racialized people. So we're all represented. We're not there yet. This is not gender equality without every 
woman and every person. I remember when one of the issues was the shock of thinking that menstruating woman would be presiding at the Eucharist. And I wanted to jump back into the earlier thing. One of the other concerns I know both our churches share is about modern slavery and in particular human trafficking. And in Canada, that is a huge part of that is about Indigenous women being trafficked on a sex circuit across the, both there's an Eastern one and a Western one. So again, this intersectionalism of racism and sexism and a whole bunch of other things keeps coming up again and again. And you're right, until everyone is represented, no one's properly represented. I hope listeners are starting to see this invisible row of medals that both these women are holding for all their work in the church. One last question. If you could say anything to young people and people listening, what would you say? Just because you've never seen it before, you've never seen uh, whatever it is your heart and your passion are calling you to do and to be is not a reason not to do it. Find a way for your gifts to be expressed, especially in the church. You do need to push the church. We, we are we're a bit like an elephant. We're slow moving <laughs> sometimes, I mean, not all the time. And some churches are faster than others. Lutherans are much faster than Anglicans. <laughs> <laughs> Take that passion and find a doorway to be able to express it and give it to the church and to the world and challenge the church to recognize the gifts. The church needs to listen to young people for sure, but young people also need to listen and say, what is the wisdom here and how can I be part of it? But don't be shy about saying, can I share in this? And here's how I'd like to share and push some of us old folks to get out of the way a little. (laughs) (laughs) Bishop Susan, what would you say? I was meeting with a group of young women last night, and this is what I said to them. I said, don't be afraid to claim your voice. God has made you the person you are, and your voice is just as valuable as anyone else. And just as Archbishop Linda and I have had to sometimes find courage to claim our voice and push in the church, other other young people are going to have to do the same thing, to stand up and go confident in who they are, the way God made them, and the gifts that they have, and push for change where it's needed. Thank you both so much for this discussion. There is so much power in wielding your own voice and pushing for change and finding barriers and then breaking those barriers and working together in gracious community to do all of those things. So thank you both so much for your time and your message of hope for this church that reflects equality and justice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and post about it on social media. To catch all the latest from PWRDF, you can follow us on Twitter at PWRDF, Instagram at PWRDF underscore Just Generation. And don't forget to check out PWRDF.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.